the book of Joel. Uh, it's usually useful to begin with a bit of background to the book we're doing for RBT. Uh, but interestingly, there's not much information to give this time about the book of Joel. It's a collection of prophetic poems originally delivered to God's Old Testament people who lived in the southern nation of Judah. But we don't know exactly when. We also don't know much about Joel himself, except that his name means the Lord is God, which is pretty great. Uh, And that he's counted as one of the 12 minor prophets. Now the reason, of course, he's called a minor prophet, or that there are any minor prophets, is not because he was unimportant, but simply because his book is shorter than those that we call the major prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Now, just to highlight its shortness, and some of you will be really pleased, Joel is just three chapters long, and you can read the book of Joel aloud in just 12 minutes, or at least that's how long it takes David Suchet on my audio Bible, which I prefer to me. Um, So it's not a big assignment for us this month, after we've just done the book of Hebrews. But it's also a book that really rewards rereading. If you think about it, if you set aside, if we set aside 10 minutes a day, we could read Joel every day and come to RBT having read it like 20 times. Or with just three or four minutes a day, we could read a chapter every day and come to RBT having read it through seven times. Now, obviously, it's not a competition. It's not really about how many times you read it. But the point is, Joel really rewards rereading, repeated reading. And one reason for that is that it's almost all poetry. It's full of rich language and imagery that tends to impact you more and more as you read it. And that's really been my experience, reading and rereading it the last couple of weeks. Uh, I found that the more time I've spent in the book of Joel, uh, not only does it become more familiar and make more sense, but I've come to see God's gracious character and promises shining through its pages all the more clearly than perhaps I did on the first or second go through. And hopefully we're going to discover some of that together this morning as we get to grips with it now. Uh, Now, I'll just say a couple of things to help us get our bearings before we then kind of do our journey through it. Firstly, there are three key themes that Joel keeps returning to, and I think these will come up on the screen, hopefully. The first, and perhaps the most prominent one, is something called the Day of the Lord. It's mentioned specifically at least five times in Joel. It's then alluded to a whole lot more times. And it's a theme that's repeated innumerable times throughout the whole Bible. And the phrase Day of the Lord basically describes particular occasions, moments in human history when God appears in especially powerful ways to confront evil and to judge sin and to deliver and rescue his people. You could just think about the plagues and the exodus from Egypt as being one prominent example of the day of the Lord. The second big theme in Joel is repentance. As we, as we read, we'll see Joel repeatedly calling on the people to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn back to God. And Joel's going to paint some really helpful pictures of what genuine repentance looks like And he's going to tell us just how warmly God welcomes those who repent. And the third and final big theme is the promise of God coming to dwell with his people. It's a big promise in Joel. Amidst all of the warnings of judgment, God wants to rescue them so that he can live with them. 
And uh, that will lead us to one of, the, uh, one of those great spine-tingling moments later on in the book of Joel when we'll realize just how profoundly God has already begun to fulfill that particular promise of dwelling with Christians today. But we'll get there later. Don't want to give spoilers. So those are the, those are the three main themes of Joel. The day of the Lord, uh, repentance, and God's promise to dwell with his people. Let me just say a couple of things about the, how the book is structured and fits together. Now, I've mentioned already that it's three chapters long, but if you like, you could split Joel into two neat halves. In the first half, Joel twice announces the judgment of the Lord and twice calls the people to repentance. And then in the second half, he goes on to describe the incredible things that God promises to do for them when they repent. But we're actually going to break it down a little bit further this morning and hopefully make it even easier for us to follow as we read. So we're going to break each of those two sections in half again. Are you following? Hopefully. So we're going to work through the book under four headings this morning. And I think they'll all come up at once to start with. Sorry, you're probably still writing that last one down. Uh, four headings. A very present judgment, a greater judgment to come, a passionate response to repentance, and a future day of the Lord. So that's where we're going. That's how we'll walk through it together. So, here we go. Our first heading, A Very Present Judgment. This is chapter 1. Chapter 1 throws us headfirst into the middle of a disaster. God's people are experiencing a devastating infestation of locusts. And the destruction that the locusts are reaping throughout the land is almost apocalyptic in nature. It's terrible. Look at, um, read with me, Joel, or reading your heads along with me, Joel chapter 1, verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Now, many of us perhaps have never stopped to think about the unimaginable devastation that a plague of locusts could bring. And the idea can seem kind of 
otherworldly or, or something very much confined to ancient times. But actually, an article in the Times just a few days ago um, reported that today, Kenya is experiencing the worst outbreak of desert locusts in 70 years. This is from the report. With a plague so thick in some areas, locals say they can barely see through the hundreds of millions of fluttering bugs. Multiple swarms, including one estimated to be billions strong and big enough to cover Greater London, have crossed into Kenya, and a small swarm of several million insects can, can consume enough food for 35,000 people in a single day, the UN has warned. Left unchecked, a locust swarm will descend on every inch of available land, ripping through every kind of vegetation, suffocating the land and turning it into a wasteland. And there's virtually nothing, humanly speaking, that can be done to stop them. So Judah are facing a terrible situation. So much so that Joel actually challenges the elders to try and think of a time when things had been worse. Verse 2. And what makes it most devastating of all is, not, is that it's not just some unfortunate natural occurrence that hopefully will go away on its own. No, the Lord himself has sent it. And in a manner very reminiscent of the plague of locusts that he once sent upon Egypt when he wanted them to let his people go. The difference now, of course, is that God's judgment isn't falling on some foreign oppressor of his people. It's falling on his own people for their sin. And so, Joel calls on the people to turn from their sin and cry out to the Lord for mercy. Look at verse 13. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. And then a little bit further down in verses 19 and 20, Joel too repents along with the people. And that's the first chapter of Joel. Judgment has come and it is awful and the people's only hope is to repent and cry out to God for mercy. Now, it might seem like a somewhat glum and depressing start to a book. It's not quite like the soaring heights of Hebrews chapter 1 that we had last time. But the reality is that it's actually opening the way for rescue. Chapter 1 is opening the door for a rescue to come. The very fact that God is concerned to call them to repentance shows that he's willing and ready to forgive. Even this very present judgment is woven throughout with mercy. But even as Joel writes about the current devastation from the locusts, he's prompted to warn them about an even worse situation an even worse devastation that awaits them if they go on hardening their hearts against God. And so in chapter 2, he turns their attention to a greater judgment to come. That's our second heading, a greater judgment to come. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. Now the first thing to notice about uh, this second section is it, it has the same kind of flow as the first. The description of a disaster, of God's judgment followed by a call to repentance. 
But there are several important differences to, to notice. Firstly, this disaster hasn't happened yet. Secondly, if or when it does happen, it will be much more devastating than the first. And thirdly, and most importantly, there's an opportunity for them now to repent ahead of time and escape the judgment altogether. But the time to repent is now. Joel's really clear on that. You can feel the urgency of it in the very first verse of chapter 2. His words come out like a, a divine air raid siren, sounding the alert to let them know of the danger. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And it actually reads like maybe it's another wave of locusts coming in, but, but then it soon becomes clear that it's something worse still. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them, though through the years of all generations. So this time it's an invading army the likes of which has never been seen before, marching down from the mountains like a black cloud towards Jerusalem, leaving devastation in their wake. And um, you, you might, if you're a fan, picture Saruman's army of orcs descending on Helm's Deep in the second Lord of the Rings movie. Don't worry if you don't know what I'm talking about. It's a little picture of it, perhaps. Look at verse 3. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march, each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They don't jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now, is he describing a real army? Maybe. Maybe not. Sometimes God would send other nations, even godless nations to invade his people because of their sin and because of their hard, unrepentant hearts. But some of, some of, some of the imagery here suggests that it, it's something more. It's something more cosmic and even supernatural. But whether it's a literal army or not is not the point. The thing Joel wants the people to understand most of all is who is going to be at the head of this army. Verse 11, it's the Lord himself. And that's why Joel says, the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? When the Lord himself finally comes to judge sin, there will be no escape for those who've not already turned to him 
for mercy. In the end, God will do what is right. He will ultimately punish sin and bring evildoers to justice, even if those evildoers happen to be the unrepentant people of Judah. But it hasn't happened yet. And God doesn't want them to be destroyed. He doesn't wish that any should perish, then or now, but that all should turn and be saved. That's 2 Peter 3 verse 9. And so as before in chapter 1, here again in chapter 2, the description of God's judgment is followed by God's own earnest, loving appeal to them to turn to him in repentance. Their own hearts might be cold and hard towards God, but God's heart is warm with compassion towards them. Just listen to the way, look at the way that God appeals to them in chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, like he's saying, even now, after all you've done, yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And in verse 13, return to the Lord your God. In fact, the very essence of what repentance is is summed up in that word that crops up twice there, return. To repent is to return to the Lord your God. And then Joel gives them the ultimate reason to return, the very best reason to return, the most glorious incentive to return, for, he says, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Now certainly the, the, the locust swarm all around them should persuade them. Certainly the warning of a far greater judgment to come should convince them, but Do you want to know the ultimate reason, according to Joel, why every sinner should repent and return to God? Because of who God is. He's the Lord your God, says Joel. He's the covenant God. He's the the promise-keeping God. The one who is altogether gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And I wonder if we realize this and remember this for ourselves this morning, that this is fundamentally who God is and what he's like. Sometimes I think we, in practice, forget. We don't live in the good of this. And perhaps if you're not yet a Christian this morning, you've never realized this before, that this is what God is like. But here is the God of the Bible. Here's his Instagram bio. Here's his Twitter handle. Right here on the page in front of us, in God's own handwriting, he's the God of grace and mercy. He's the God who abounds in steadfast love, as we've been singing about this morning. He's the God who delights to rescue sinners who simply turn to him to be saved. Isn't this just the greatest incentive for anyone in Joel's day or in our day to repent and turn back to God? To know that God is waiting with arms outstretched, arms of mercy to receive us, like like the father waiting eagerly, looking down the lane, looking for his prodigal son to come home. Isn't isn't that really the thing that perhaps ultimately persuaded those of us us that are Christians this morning to come to Christ in the first place? God's outstretched arms of mercy and his welcome as we repent and believe. There's no better reason to return to the Lord your God, Joel says, than his gracious, merciful love. And the clues to God's gracious purposes in all of this in Joel have really been there right from the very start. And let me just read from Mark Dever, 
He says this, God gave Joel this prophecy. He told Joel to proclaim these words to the people. God stirred them up. Someone who is really your enemy won't tell you he's about to destroy you. He'll just wipe you out. But God warned his people, telling them they could respond in one of two ways, either in repentance and faith or in rejection and more sin. The warnings of this book are more like a doctor's warning, a teacher's admonishment or a mother's loving rebuke. It wouldn't be gracious to let them carry on in unrepentant sin. He wants them to turn and be saved. And because that's his purpose here as well, he wants them to be really clear on what repentance is. I know we've already said it's, it's, it's turning. But in verse 13, he, he tells them more. He says to them, rend your hearts and not your garments. See, it was the custom at the time that if you'd done something particularly awful uh, and, and you wanted to show your regret, you'd literally tear your clothes as an outward sign of your distress. But here, Joel tells them, God's not interested in that. Repentance is not a show you just put on on the outside to get out of trouble. No, he says, tear your hearts, not your garments, because repentance is a matter of the heart. To repent is to acknowledge with our hearts that our rebellion against God is wrong and that we want it to stop. And it's to cry out to God with a heartfelt plea for mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't matter whether, whether we do it loudly or quietly, whether the person beside us knows we're doing it or not. What matters is that it's heartfelt and that we do it now. If you're not a Christian here this morning, God is inviting you to repent even now in your heart, to do it now while we still can. And so Joel calls on every single man, woman, and child in the city, in the nation, of Judah to respond genuinely and to respond now, to drop whatever they're doing and to cry out to God to be saved. Look at verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. And then what follows in Joel and what will follow for anyone and everyone who turns to God in, in repentance and faith still today is God's own passionate response to their repentance. And that's our next heading for this morning. God's Passionate response to their repentance. And what we're going to see now is truly astounding. Look at verse 18, chapter 2. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Seeing their repentance, God's heart becomes filled with passion for his people. He's loved them already. He's reached out to them and called them to repent. But now seeing them turn, his heart is, is filled to overflowing with passion for them. And then, well, it's like the floodgates of God's mercy are completely unleashed. Immediately, he tells them he's going to reverse the devastating effects of their sin and make the day of the Lord a day of salvation for them and not judgment. And in particular, he promises to do Three things, and you'll see these come up on the screen one by one in a moment. 
First of all, he promises he'll defeat the invading locusts. Verses 20 and 21. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. So he'll defeat the locusts. Second, he'll restore the devastated land. Verse 22, fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Now, it's all amazing stuff, but what should really knock us for six here is that God says he will actually restore to them the years that the locust has eaten. He's promising early rains, pastures of a sort of Garden of Eden-like green, trees bearing masses of fruit, vats overflowing with wine and oil. God promises to literally lavish his goodness upon them and make up for all the years that they lost because of their own sin and foolishness. Now this is, this is mercy, but it's more than just mercy. It's more than just sparing them now from the judgment they deserved. This is the richest kind of grace. Restoring their sorrow, reversing their sorrow, satisfying their souls, richly blessing them with everything their years of rebellion stole. And thirdly, and I think best of all, Joel promises that in response to their repentance... God will dwell in the midst of his people. He'll dwell in the midst of his people. Verse 27, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. This really is the pinnacle of, so far of God's salvation promises for Joel. God coming even now to live in the midst of his people. Presumably, at that point in the temple in Jerusalem. It's an amazing reversal of circumstances from where they, where they just were, where they were devastated and ashamed just a chapter and a half ago. But this, again, is what the God of the Bible is like. This is what God loves to do for every kind of wayward sinner who accepts the simple invitation to turn and trust in him. And with this wondrous threefold response to their repentance, rescuing, restoring, and returning to dwell with them, you would almost wouldn't be surprised if the book ended here at chapter 2, verse 27. It'd be a gloriously happy ending. All is well for the people of God in Judah. But there's more. There is even better yet to come, because now Joel is ready to point them and us forward, finally, to an even greater day of the Lord. And that's our fourth and final heading for this morning, a future day of the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. 
And notice, first of all, the word afterward in verse 28. Yes, the rescue of Judah is, a, is an amazing thing, a great thing. The locusts gone, the land restored, God back in the temple. But one day, Joel says, God's rescue won't just be for Judah, but for the nations. One day, God's blessing is going to go global. And here in the final quarter of the book, um, essentially mirroring and magnifying those three promises we just looked at that God made to Judah, Joel takes that hope for Judah and he expands it into a vision of hope for all of creation. So he takes those three promises and expands it into this vision of hope for all of creation. Now here's the first of those greater promises that will be fulfilled, he says, on a future day of the Lord. One day, he says, God's spirit won't just fill the temple. One day, his spirit will fill his people. That's the first promise. Chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. One day, his spirit will fill his people. Joel says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Jumping down a bit, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now, imagine first of all being amongst Joel's original hearers, hearing that kind of announcement. It it must even for them have been quite mind-blowing. A promise that one day God would not just come to live next door to them, but come to live within each one of them to empower and transform them from the inside out. It must have been incredible. It must have been mind-blowing. But I I tell you what should be even more mind-blowing when we read these words, that we get to live in a time when this has become reality. Did you recognize Joel's words from somewhere in the Bible? Perhaps. I suspect so. Pentecost. At Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, the, the th- actually the three main themes of the book of Joel, the, the day of the Lord, repentance, and God coming to dwell with his people, they all converge and come together, and they reach this new level of fulfillment in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in his very first sermon, after Jesus has ascended back to heaven, Peter quotes this exact passage from Joel and tells the people gathered around him in Jerusalem that what they're witnessing that day is the very fulfillment of this promise from Joel. The Spirit of God being poured out on God's people. And this time it's not just about Judah, not just about Israel. This promise is for every kind of person, man or woman, young or old, Jew or Gentile, insider or outsider. And then Joel says, verse 32, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So these two two things go together. God coming to dwell, his spirit coming down, and then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord being saved. And that is exactly what happens in response to Peter's Joel 2 sermon that we read in Acts chapter 2. There's a great multitude of people, if you remember, listening to Peter, quoting Joel, and then explaining Jesus' death and resurrection. And here's what we read in Acts 2 from verse 37. Now, when they, this is the great crowd, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Which sounds like a kind of Joel-like question. 
And Peter said to them, repent. And there's that Joel-like answer. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then in verse 41 we're told, Those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a privilege it is that we live this side of the cross. This side of Jesus' resurrection and ascension and his pouring out the Spirit. I mean, wow, what a day to live in. There is just so much for us to think about and give thanks for as we read through um, Joel together this month, particularly some of these passages, these promises. But we're not quite done yet. Next, Joel picks up that earlier promise that God would destroy the locust invaders. And looking forward to this future day of the Lord to come, he tells them that one day God will defeat all their enemies. He'll defeat all the enemies of his people. This is chapter 3 of Joel, verses 1 to 17. Let me just read two or three verses of this. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So God is saying one day he will defeat every enemy that threatens his people. Now, Maybe most prominent in Joel's mind, he's thinking about those uh, arrogant, violent nations around uh, Israel who posed a constant threat to God's people. But looking beyond that, though, and as we read chapter 3, verses 1 to 17 this month, you can see many parallels with Jesus' teaching about the final day of judgment, when every person who's ever lived will be gathered before the judgment seat of God on the great and final day of the Lord. And on that day, chapter 3, verse 16 tells us, the Lord will roar and the heavens and the earth will quake and many faces will grow pale. And yet, there will be nothing to fear on that day for those that have already made God their refuge, verse 16. In fact, now, today, by his death, Jesus has definitively defeated Every enemy that could ever threaten us or do us harm. Dying in our place, he defeated Satan, sin and death. And there is literally nothing left to fear for those who take refuge in God's Son. Just as Paul says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? But there's one more promise to go. He'll renew all of creation. It's the final promise of Joel. God will renew all all of creation. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. Joel, we see, is picking up again that earlier promise of the land being restored after the locusts. And he sees in that this ultimate future hope for the renewal of all creation. Verse 18. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. So you've got 
wine-dripping mountains and milk-flowing hills and water-filled ravines. It's a, it's a dramatic, poetic picture of a wholly restored creation. And just like in the Apostle John's vision in Revelation 22, God himself is at the center, where his very presence is like a never-ending fountain of life and blessing flowing out to his people and to his world forever and ever. It's the climax of all of God's salvation promises, and it will be more glorious than we can possibly imagine. And it's the promise as well of a new creation that in fact has already dawned in Jesus. Jesus is the one who even now today promises to freely give forgiveness and eternal life to all who are willing to repent and turn to him to be saved. And that is what the book of Joel is really all about. 